Antelo, I'm Darren Case. You're listening to The Green Majority here in CIUT 89.5 FM. Uh, we're a little bit uh, abridged today as it is already, and we have a lot of really cool stuff we want to get through today, so I'm going to skim right into it. We have uh, an interview for you today that is very, very special. It was an excellent uh, interview. In fact, it was so good, it's it's too long to possibly play on today's show. Um, so this was the interview with uh, Professor Emeritus of uh, Economics and uh, demographics, uh, David, uh, Professor David K. Foote, uh, who's a world-renowned uh, speaker on, on both economics and demography, uh, as well as an award-winning teacher, I found out when I hmm. went to Wikipedia. Uh, we'll be hearing from, uh, from him about uh, demographics, global population, and sort of what global population trends means for our economy, because, of course, as Kevin likes to remind us frequently, our, our economy is based on the concept of infinite growth. This is an impossibility. Uh, and so where do these things meet? And uh, we had a really wonderful conversation with uh, with David. We'll be going to that just after the first music break. But right now, I would like to go directly to uh, something a bit first, which was a week ago. I believe it was last week or the week before. We had mm-hmm. uh, Brad Zarnett on uh, to talk about Toronto Sustainability Speaker Series. Uh, I went to the event. It was last night. It was great. So I asked him to do me a favor, actually, and come back on today and just do a little bit of post-op. So I believe, do we have you on the line there, Brad? I try again. Are you there, Brad? I am. Oh, thank you very much. Thanks so much for, for calling us again uh, uh, um, uh, about your event. Uh, I know it's uh, everybody who had a really good time last night, and I just asked you to come back on uh, because I thought it was uh, a really good conversation that the, what the speakers were talking about uh, was very, very interesting. But the, the most notable part and the reason uh, I wanted you to come back on and have another sort of go at uh, pitching the audience as far as maybe getting on your list and getting involved for the next one was there was an incredibly healthy Q&A section that well, ran well over after the discussion. I wanted to give you an opportunity to come in, uh, to come back in and, and just do a little post-op uh, on the event and remind people what we were talking about and what were some of the highlights. What, what do you think got people so excited about last night's conversation? Well, well thanks for the opportunity to come back and uh, talk about the event. Um, it was uh, a discussion about CSR and uh, uh, the investment community. So Bay and Wall Street and CSR was the title of the event. And there, as always, there's a, a good range of people who come out. It's not only people in the financial world, but it's, it's, it's people who are involved in sustainability in, in various respects, marketing, communications, PR, students, um, people like yourself. It's, it's, a, it's a great mix. And um, the Q&A went, <laughs> went well beyond what we planned. Um, and uh, of note was uh, your question, uh, which you called yourself the uh, the hippie of the group. Um, <laughs> token and I would hippie, say token hippie. The token hippie, and <laughs> there were there were others who feel passionate about some of these issues. And I think one theme that came out of the conversation was, you know, we can talk about uh, these uh, incremental movements to uh, affect uh, change in how sustainability is interpreted by the investment community. But boy, it sure seems slow, and uh, it can be very frustrating to sit back and calmly talk about, you know, the way we're moving forward when there is a lot of urgency to move things along much more quickly. So I felt that that was a really interesting mix between the different parts of the audience to, to bring those uh, that feeling of urgency to the forefront. And what I what I got th- found was so so valuable about last night's event uh, that I just wanted to thank you for was that was again I mean I, I you know it was and it was part of the question that you mentioned uh, that I asked that I had a few comments on about uh, afterwards but it was just sort of the idea of um, 
you know, here's what you're doing and here's how it relates to the rest of your industry and all these other metrics that you're used to comparing your, your business practices to. Um, but just I, I just wanted to sort of remind folks, you know, if this doesn't connect up in some way with what we know about, you know, the planetary boundaries and stuff like that and the, the limits of the, the system in which that system is operating, then then the effect is – it really doesn't mean much or it could potentially not mean much. But at the same point, you know, the, there it has to be acknowledged that, you know, the, these people are within their sectors doing – trying very hard, I think, in very in very genuinely to, to make change. It was just sort of that additional part that, you know, you're, you're doing good stuff, but it's still not good enough. What else can we do even further? And I think that was the that's the entire point of, of why you throw these events. What, what more can we do? Well, how do we learn from each other is a big part of it. And uh, if you're in the financial industry and you're trying to bring about a, an organizational and cultural change in how you see opportunities, you can learn from somebody who works in retail or in the agricultural sector or in mining. It doesn't really matter because the common denominator of all these different companies are people uh, and organizations um, are run by personalities and you need to understand how to work um, through the organizational challenges and that is at the core, the toughest challenge of sustainability is the organizational change uh, that is what we all face, regardless of where we work. Amazing. Uh, do you want to just let people uh, know how they can maybe sign up for the list for the uh, for the next event? Sure. Um, I'll just give you a, a quick uh, um, um, elevator pitch for the next event. It's on sport and sustainability and the power of sport to impact uh, communities and to get communities engaged in more sustainable uh, living and approaches. Um, we have uh, uh, an incredible speaker uh, who is uh, worked originally with Whistler 2010, and uh, now she is a consultant to the IOC, International Olympic Committee, and FIFA. Um, and we're going to have her, it's Anne Duffy, and we're going to have a couple of uh, guests from Toronto who are um, involved with the Pan Am Games. And we're going to look at the um, ability to have a positive impact on communities uh, through sport. So it's a very interesting event and it's easy to sign up to our email list. It's uh, T as in Tom, triple S, T S S S dot C A, and uh, just click on the button to join our email list. Uh, we also have a LinkedIn group, again, Toronto Sustainability Speaker Series, comes up pretty fast, uh, or uh, follow us on Twitter, and you can do that all from the homepage uh, of the website. Thank you so much for your time, Brad, and I look forward to your next event. Pleasure, and uh, I hope to see you there next time, and uh, I I love what you do. Thank you so much. You too. Have a great day, Brad. Thanks. Bye-bye. All right, so we're actually going to go to uh, we uh, we uh, had a little bit of a late start there on the show from a preceding show, so we're shy on time. So I'm going to actually go immediately to our first music break now, so that we can get underway. I'd like to come back and and get as uh, as much into the uh, the David Foot interview as we can. So you're listening to the Green Majority. This is CIUT 89.5, or possibly one of our wonderful community radio sponsors all the way across the country. We'll be right back after this music break. This is Darren Kayster, host of The Green Majority. Green Majority is now so much more than just a radio show. You can learn more about what we're doing and find out how to support us at greenmajority.ca.
back. I'm Derek Casey. You're listening to The Green Majority. We're just going to go to our tech who today is Aaron Landers. Would you please tell us what we were just listening to? Hey, what's up? Uh, that was uh, Mac DeMarco uh, passing out pieces. Passing out the pieces. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. Uh, we're going to go now. I'll just give you a second to, to get organized there. But we're going to go again, as I was priming before. Uh, it's a professor emeritus of economics uh, from the University of Toronto, as well as a Harvard-educated uh, economist, uh, award-winning teacher, author, and demographer, David K. Foote. Um, he is frequently uh, called to be a speaker internationally on issues of uh, demographics and uh, and advises lots of different panels and boards and does all sorts of speaking tours and stuff. Very interesting guy. Uh, we actually got connected to uh, David through because he's a former teacher of Kevin mm-hmm. Farmer, who's huh. not here today. Um, but we had a great conversation. There's no way we're going to get through all of it because it's almost 30 minutes long. But we're going to play as much for you as we can because we think it's really uh, – I thought it was really good. Um, and uh, he touches on a number of interesting topics. We kind of hop around uh, topics a whole bunch, and I just couldn't – there was just nowhere to cut it. It was all good. So we're going to play as much as we can, but if you uh, if you miss any part of it or you would like to hear the full un- in- interview un- uh, uninterrupted or perhaps undistracted if you're driving, uh, this will be available on our YouTube channel by later today. When I get the show post up, this will also be up. So without further ado, this is uh, Professor David Foote. Professor, how much of demography is actually hard science? How difficult is it to create models for human population trends? Well, population projections are one of the tools of demography and certainly a forward-looking tool. Uh, we collect data right around the world. Some data, of course, are better than others, and that, so the, one of the problems is quality of data. But then we just look at the past and project those trends into the future. And the question is how we project those trends into the future, and that has got a little more complicated as we've begun to understand more things about birth rates, death rates, and the movement of people around the globe. And how is technological advancement taken into account? 
Well, that's a really good question because, in fact, the population projections do not do that. They do not feed back the land area. The, I would argue water is even more important than food. Uh, they do not feed that back in. They look at past trends. Uh, they may build a little bit more information in, uh, which these latest later sets of projections have done, but they're not looking at the feedback from technology onto the population. I would argue their projections are probably too high in one respect because of that. What sorts of things is this used for? What sort of decisions are being made with these projections? Oh, lots of decisions. Uh, people enter the workforce sometime in their late teens or early 20s, so it tells you something about workforce growth. Prior to that, of course, it tells you about school-age populations, whether it's primary, uh, secondary, post-secondary. And, of course, at the other end of the age spectrum, it tells you how many people are likely to be retired and needing pensions or at least in, in needing some sort of income support down the road. What is a demographic transition? Well, demographic transition is a theory that's been around for a long time. And it argued that early societies had high birth rates uh, because there weren't access to education, but also high death rates because there was, uh, you know, whether you hunted and gathered, whether there was enough food or not. So population growth was pretty low. High birth rates, high death rates. And then in the 1800s, through much of the developed world, we understood more about bacteria and sewage, and all of a sudden uh, we lowered the death rate substantially. But the birth rate stayed high. So that meant population growth shot up. Uh, then, as society developed further, we invested in education. And education of women, particularly, is very important for the determinants of the birth rate. And that education of women over the 1900s and uh, late 1900s and into the 20th century, um, uh, over the late 1800s and into the 20th century, uh, dropped the uh, fertility rate. And population growth slowed down again. And the idea is that it would stabilize around two children per family because two parents replacing themselves at two children per family. Uh, but in fact, there's a uh, stage now where many European countries and Japan and so on are well below two children per family. So in those countries, there's actually now negative population growth. So the idea, slow population growth, rapid population growth, slowing population growth, and now negative population growth is the traditional uh, demographic transition. I've heard that empowering women in any society is one of the most direct and effective ways to both improve societal health and curb overpopulation. Is it, at least conceptually, that simple? Um, it's not the only determinant, but it's by far the most important determinant. It is conceptually that simple. It really is. Uh, research over the last uh, 70 years have consistently come up with the connection between female education and fertility rates. Uh, and there are other things involved, obviously technology matters, the availability of the birth control pill and other sorts of knowledge, but again, use of those things requires education to support it. So the education of women is the single most important thing in the determinant of, of fertility rates. And remember, we're talking about a girl who goes from grade four to grade five is getting more education. We're not talking about women all getting PhDs. We're talking about this new study because it has bucked the trend of previous UN reports that global population will stabilize somewhere around 9.5 billion people. But the new and apparently improved study seems to refute this. What are the implications of a slowing but never actually stabilizing global population? Okay, a good question. Now, there's a number of other things, of course. Uh, deaths. And in fact, as we're keeping... Uh, uh, nature has a wonderful way of, of, of hitting us with uh, all sorts of 
uh, tragic things. Uh, wars are an obvious thing that humans are involved with, but uh, Ebola and things like and AIDS in particular. So as we curb deaths from things like AIDS, that keeps people alive longer. That also contributes to population growth. But you're right to focus on the fertility rate. The fertility rate tends to be the most important determinant. But even the fertility rate in Kenya, it's dropped from eight to under four children per family. It's dropped in half. But four children per family is still too many for the globe. If you're replacing yourself, you only need to have two. And so we've seen a rapid decline in fertility rates over the 70s and 80s into the 90s. But over the last decade, that decline has slowed down. It hasn't stopped. It's slowed down. And some of that has to do with the fact that there's lots of countries in the world that have high fertility that are not educating women. Um, Africa's an obvious example. I paint too big a picture there. Obviously, there's some um, many exceptions. And in fact, the, the Muslim world, uh, too, um, in its extreme, uh, doesn't uh, think female education is all that important. So the, de the decline in fertility is still going on, but it's not as rapid as it's been in the past. And that means that many of these countries are stalling at fertility rates above replacement. Rich nations in general have stable or negative population growth, which are stabilized or grow largely from immigration from poorer nations. What are the population, but potentially more importantly, the economic impacts of this type of population flow? That's a good question in the sense that uh, it helps explain the movement of people around the world. Much of the movement, too, by the way, is related to disasters and so on. So let's, uh, but some of the movement is clearly economic. But before we go there, let's, uh, uh, let's talk a little bit about um, Canada. A uh, slower population growth relying more on immigrants, and that's definitely true. But let me point out to you that Canada's in the middle of the pack. Uh, many countries of Europe, particularly southern Europe, Italy, France, uh, no, not so much France, Italy, Spain, Portugal, Greece, these countries that have much lower fertility rates than Canada. And the same with Japan and rapidly toward, uh, happening to Taiwan, Korea as well. So there are other parts of the world that are aging much more rapidly than Canada is. Canada's sort of in the middle of the pack, although the fertility is below the replacement level of two. Uh, many of these other countries don't welcome immigrants. So they're even in worse shape than Canada is down the road. So as you paint this picture for Canada, remember we're probably one of, one of the more optimistic countries uh, along uh, in the world. Uh, but it's true that as, uh, as uh, we age as a society, fewer younger people, more older people, eco economic growth inevitably slows down. Technology does not uh, take over. And consequently, you have a slow-growing economy. But that means you need less people. And it's businesses that go berserk when they can't get their growth, uh, meet their growth targets. But a society that inevitably has slower growth, and this is why Japan's been in a, a challenge over the last decade, they have a very old society, why Europe has now got much slower growth, while the growth in Canada is slowing down. This is demographics at work. And we have to get business to, to understand that the, inevitably in, an, in, in our aging society there will be slower economic growth even if we bring in some immigrants. What is different about this new study and what is the understanding it might give for our population over the next century? Well, uh, projections uh, um, traditionally have, have focused around uh, past trends and expert opinion about where they're going. And generally, part of the tra demographic transition was in the background, and people always thought that a replacement fertility rate, around two children per family, was probably where most countries were going to end up, that were well-developed. 
And we've seen that that's not necessarily true. Some countries seem to be stabilizing at a significantly higher level, uh, countries in Africa, for example, and other countries, Japan and uh, Europe, are stabilizing at a much lower level. So that, that old point of view has been under question. Uh, what the new United Nations uh, report does is that it builds in extra information that your behavior is influenced by the countries around you. So that if there's a lot of countries around you that have got higher fertility rates, then your fertility rates aren't going to drop as fast. And that's the extra information they've built in to their projections. And when they do that, they end up with a, a somewhat higher population, higher average fertility rate for the world, and therefore uh, a higher population level. Uh, but it's still significantly slower growth. The population growth today is around 1% for the world. Is it just over 1%? It used to be 3%. And even this new projection, which ends up with a higher population, um, still has slowing growth uh, over, over the near future, over the foreseeable future. And foreseeable future is the next 100 years. <laughs> With the older assumption that population would stabilize around 9.5 billion, I'm surprised I haven't heard the business community working to help plan for something that would be in direct conflict with the basis of how our current economic system works. Well, I mean, there is a little bit of a, of a, um, a hidden agenda here. I mean, I think, uh, I wonder to what extent that business has been infiltrating the United Nations, and I say this with a twinkle in my eye, because business clearly benefits from bigger populations and more growth. And this latest uh, population projection gives them exactly what they want to hear. All right? Uh, I suspect 12 billion is way out of, the, out of the ballpark because the 12 billion does not take account of the shortages of water, shortages of arable land. It doesn't take account of significant wars that occur as a result of that that we've already seen in Africa, uh, for example, uh, in the past 30 years. And so I think 12 billion is too high. Um, but, you know, the question is nine, ten, ten and a half, probably, uh, because, remember, women are not getting educated in these parts of the world now. We've withdrawn education from significant pocket, pockets of the world for women, and that's stabilizing that fertility rate at a higher level. Business probably likes that, but it only works for business if they've got money to be able to spend. And so in the world that has money, uh, much slower growth and in fact negative growth, businesses go berserk because they can't meet their growth potential. And we should be educating business to adapt to slower growth and worry more about profitability than growth. Um, and uh, business doesn't always want to listen to that. So then where does the rubber meet the road, as it were, with a direct conflict between our current economic model and the physical reality of this planet? Well, good question. I'll give you one tangible example where the rubber meets the road. It's called free trade deals. Because if your population's growing and you're not getting enough people in your country, then why not sign a free trade deal and try and grab somebody else's market? And so the proliferation of free trade deals over the last 20 years is an example of where the rubber meets the road, that uh, slower growth in home markets means that you're going to try and grab somebody else's market. And that's been going on over and over again by influential business. Um, that doesn't mean they have our long-term interest in mind. In fact, probably the contrary. They're in for, for a short-term profit. And we have to worry very much about the long-term future of little planet Earth, uh, spaceship Earth, I used to refer to it. Um, we need to worry about And I, I think arable water, I think water is the most important. I think we're going to see huge conflicts and huge deaths over insufficient water in even countries like India. 
that's going to have huge uh, implications for their growth rates. So even if you sign a free trade with, deal with India, it doesn't mean you're going to get uh, a rapidly growing population, but you do get a big country to market to. You mentioned water, but what are the other implications of having nine plus billion humans on this one planet? Well, this, this is a, a, a question that's been debated now for 150 or more, 200 years since Malthus almost. Um, are there natural limits or does technology offset some of those natural limits? And what is the carrying capacity of, of spaceship Earth? Um, you know, if we melt all the glaciers, we get more water. Now, we may not always have it in the right place, and some countries may be underwater, and a few ports may be flooded, but we get more water. Uh, can we turn that into a positive rather than a negative? Because it will happen reasonably slowly. Um, so there are lots of questions about the role of, of, of natural consequences of concentrating too many people. Um, certainly the research on many other species suggests if you put too many people in one place, they turn on one another, although we seem to be able to have big cities uh, without that necessarily happening, so maybe humans are different. Um, but certainly uh, water, land are crucial. Uh, the ability to uh, feed your family and um, that is absolutely uh, paramount in every human uh, culture. And the question then is, are we polluting too much? Are we um, creating environments that uh, it's going to get more and more difficult to feed the family? Up to now, technology has bailed us out. Um, we get better yields on, on arable land now. We can get four times the yield that we used to get in 1950. Uh, how much longer can we keep waiting for technology to bail us out, or will one day technology fail us? Many people seem not to worry and assume that technology will save us. Are you more concerned about us not fully understanding the gravity of the problems we're setting ourselves up for, or by the hubris of just assuming that no matter what, our gizmos will save us? I think more the latter than the former. I think it's the hubris that uh, everyone says, well, look, last 200 years... Humans have been creative enough to bail us out. Why won't that happen in the next 200 years? That's a little bit of hubris. Um, also, you know, if we ever do get a, a solution for cancer, uh, and you know we've brought heart attacks down dramatically through uh, early detection, that means people are living longer. And that also keeps up population and more people on the globe. So things that are really quite good actually can be bad from the, the world's point of view in the sense of, uh, of people on the globe. So I think it's more hubris. Uh, I think people do have uh, an ability to solve problems. Uh, I do think that the bigger the problem, the more effort goes into solving it. So things that are not perceived to be a problem here and now don't get a solution here and now. And it's only when you start coughing and spluttering and your parents start dying from air pollution that people will put their efforts into stopping air pollution. Uh, and that's why uh, the environmentalists are so frustrated at, at putting off these issues because they're not a here and now issue even though they're gradually emerging. And I think, uh, I'm not sure I believe in the tipping point theory that, that your question suggested that somehow that we get to a point and then all of a sudden everything falls apart. In this case, the past has told us that incrementalism and that incremental speed may pick up, like the, the glaciers uh, carving, may, the speed may pick up in some parts of the world, but not, not in others. Um, we are collecting more information, we are collecting more data, humans are creative, but I still worry about the hubris, as I think you do in your question. 
this is also one of the problems with politi our political systems, that we're, we've got four-year election cycles uh, in democracies around the world, often three, four, five, but the point is short-term. And so politicians only think two or three years at a time and then worry about getting re-elected. So we don't have decision systems. And as I've already said, businesses think one year at a time largely. We don't have decision systems that allow us to think longer term to solve these problems. So it's becoming very, very frustrating that nobody uh, is looking in our self-interest further than about three or four years down the road. And we know that can lead to serious uh, um, consequences. Why wouldn't companies want to think as long-term as possible? They market to children in the hopes of creating lifelong customers, so why not in these other areas? Well, I think you give business far too much credit. They just want more customers. And so they market to children because if their children aren't there now, uh, they're just more customers today. Uh, I don't think they're looking down the road at all. And because they'll feed them, uh, they'll overfeed them sugar, they'll overfeed them salt. Uh, they, that means that they'll die 30 years, 40 years down the road. So by what they're feeding them today, many of them, they're killing their potential customers down the road. So I think you're giving businesses far too much credit for a longer term point of view. Um, plus marketing departments are burnout departments and marketing departments I've discovered are populated by young people with lots of energy. And they understand young people because that's the, they're, they're, you know, 28. They, they, they understand from zero to 28. They haven't lived the rest of their lives yet. And that's why the aging boomers now all in their 50s and 60s and 70s are being totally ignored because the marketing department, even though there's a hell of a lot more people in their 50s and 60s than there are in their teens and 20s, marketing departments understand kids in their teens and 20s. So they focus on them to the detriment of the brand, uh, even today. There seems to be an insidious trend of anti-intellectualism, and in particular keeping respect for science out of public discourse as well as public policy. Do we not understand why data like the long-form census is important, or is there something else going on here? The emerging short time frame in both the private sector and the public sector means that you don't need as much data if you're making decisions based on the next two or three years, because things aren't going to change, you don't think very much in the next two or three years. Of course, society could fall apart, we could have a war and so on, but the things that you can reasonably predict. So that this, as the focus has become more short-term, we've moved away from the United Nations 100-year. Everyone says, oh, we, they, we don't know what's going to happen in 100 years, so why look at it? So as we move to the short-term, you don't need data. And so we're seeing uh, quite often data being destroyed if not not collected, um, because you don't need data for the next couple of years is the, the, the thought of many of the decision makers. And my big concern is nobody uh, in a decision-making authority uh, around the world seems to be thinking longer term. And if you're going to think longer term, then it's much more important to have data, like census data. You don't can, can censuses because they give you uh, stepping stones about whether or not things are progressing over 5, 10, 15 year periods. Um, and I think that has led to uh, less and less concern for scientific methodology because um, you, can, you can make decisions and govern off the seat of your pants if you're only doing it for the next year or two. And just worrying about balancing the budget this year. Um, then that's a few calculations. You don't really need uh, a big data set. 
So yes, I'm concerned over the, that that nobody is really no one with authority or power is even thinking long term. I mean, back in the 60s, 70s, and even into the 80s, you could say the United Nations was doing that, and they had some power and influence. But they're not even getting their bills paid now, so um, their power and influence is is, is disappearing. Um, and this is a concern. This is a concern if you're worried about the role of humanity 25, 50, 75 years from now. Isn't this in violent disagreement with what we know about data? Long-term trends are more reliable than short-term assessments? No, you're right. dead right. How do you know that data you've got today isn't noise? It's got no information in it whatsoever. And so when you make decisions based on short-term data, you've got to be very, very careful that you're not making decisions based on what we call, scientists would call noise alone. Uh, that in fact that it's uh, got a lot of inf- informative content. And we do know that it takes time to get perfect information and that's why Statistics Canada in Canada, for example, revise things like imports and exports over time as they get more and more information. And that means that the short-term data all of a sudden are not the same uh, as we look back at them uh, from five years hence when we have more information. All right, and we are back. Unfortunately, there we faded out in the middle of a question, and uh, there, there's actually about uh, eight minutes left in that the wonderful interview, but unfortunately, we, we, just, we just don't have time to cram it into the show today. So it is going to be up uh, on the YouTube channel later today, as it will be the video version, the full ex- uh, version of that interview, if you uh, found that interesting. Uh, you can do that, and then I will also be putting a link on the show post. You can just visit greenmajority.ca later today. We're going to go to our second and final music break in just a moment. Uh, and then we're going to come back. And uh, Stefan, you've been quiet the whole show because I haven't <laughs> referred to you at all. And sorry about that. Oh, Are you feeling neglect- neglected at all? Uh, I, I got lost 20 minutes. I'm just going to say not stop talking. Awesome. So stay tuned. We'll be right back to listen to Stefan talking for 20 minutes straight. Be right back. <laughs> This is Darren Kayster, host of The Green Majority. Green Majority is now so much more than just a radio show. You can learn more about what we're doing and find out how to support us at greenmajority.ca. Outside my window is a tree. Outside my window is a tree. They're only for me. Stands in the gray of the city No time for pity For the tree
All right, and we are back. The second, uh, the second and final music break is done. We're into the home stretch here at the Green Majority uh, Radio, live at CIUT 89.5 FM, or possibly as a podcast, possibly on iTunes, possibly on SoundCloud, possibly on one of our wonderful and very much appreciated community radio syndicates. Uh, our tech for today, Aaron Landers, is going to tell us what uh, we were just listening to. That was uh, World of Pain by Cream, 60s ah. band. Yeah. <laughs> nice, yeah. It seemed uh, it seemed uh, a little bit old school there. Yeah, it's pretty old school. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much again uh, for taking care of the tech today and uh, taking care of our music. Uh, but Stefan, we're into the home stretch. Before we get in, we wanted to uh, chat a little bit about some of the t- uh, topics that came up um, about uh, the interview because the demography and global population was something uh, listeners have written uh, and called in about. Mm. Uh, we've had show discussions about. Uh, we've talked off the air about a lot, and it's come up on the show several times. So I've this had was people mad at me for it. Yeah, <laughs> so we finally got around to, after all of that talking, we finally got around to having an actual expert on mm. the topic. Uh, so we're going to chat about that uh, really quickly. But just before we do that, I wanted to promote two things that are really exciting. One uh, is that Jesse Brown, who's the uh, the host of Canada Land, a, uh, a at, at this point famous, I might even go so far as to say infamous, um, podcast and journalism site. Uh, Jesse, uh, of course, was very recently had a big thrust in notoriety in that he was the person who broke the Giangobesha story. Uh, he's also um, been writing a lot about uh, and stirring up uh, a little bit of a, a fight about uh, Amanda Lang and uh, potential implications of impropriety, uh, professional impropriety, that is. Um, and a bunch of other people at the CBC, and of course we've been talking about that as uh, quite a bit on the show. Uh, <clears throat> so I've actually been given the the wonderful honor in fact, of doing a special show. It's not an episode of The Green Majority. It's going to be next Thursday, uh, if you happen to be listening uh, within our live broadcast range. Uh, this, for our podcast and syndicate listeners, unfortunately, this will not be available on the stream. This is a separate show, so you'll have to look us up uh, at uh, Hardhouse or at CIUT.FM uh, to find this. But I will be hosting an hour-long interview with him and then a Q&A uh, about the media landscape, about the influence of alternative media and social media in uh, the practice of journalism. Uh, we're inviting uh, several students from uh, Ryerson School of Journalism. Uh, and it's going to be a very lively discussion, I assure you. So if you're in our live broadcast range, uh, you should be tuning in next Thursday for that. Uh, as well, you can check the Hart House uh, website um, to find links for that, and I'll put it on the show post as well. Uh, if you're in the Toronto area, if you're in the, the getting here distance, you can actually come and be a part of the live studio audience for that um, and sit in here and not only, not only view it live, but also get a chance to ask Jesse some questions. Uh, so that should be good. It's going to be a lively conversation, I assure you. Uh, so that'll be next Thursday, and I'll have the – I'm blanking at the moment on the specific time. Uh, sorry, 3. There we are. Uh, next Thursday, February 12th at 3, and there will be a link on the show post today. Or you can just uh, search uh, for the Hart House website here at the University of Toronto, and they will have a link and registration for that as well. That's number one. Number two, Stefan, I'm going to ask for your help with mm-hmm. um, because it is not up yet, but I think I'm, I'm going to be posting it either today or within the next couple of days is – uh, a very big sort of turning point for some of our other projects. We've been uh, talking to our radio audience uh, once in a while about letting them know that we have a lot of other stuff that we do, uh, in addition to just the radio show. And this is uh, this is kind of big. I'm gonna give I'm gonna give you the full mm. honor of okay. introducing what our our new project that will is about to be launched. What it is? What are we doing? Right. Uh, so basically, our goal uh, is to create a a wide ranging set of short, a very digestible uh, and very very fact based. Um, vignettes if you will uh maybe two two and a half minutes uh if we get into something insanely complicated maybe three but the goal is to keep it very short uh and to sort of cover the range from uh what 
what how we really understand the the world uh, of climate change is now and why we uh, and through a whole variety of videos uh, to why we should be excited about the ability our chances to actually uh, tackle these these uh, these these problems or why why the, why climate change creates actual an opportunity uh, to create a better world uh, and so we, sort of we had some ideas we want to do at how it all started was we actually had some ideas of, of these later videos where like every time we want to have these later videos we're like well I, we, it would it would take so much groundwork mm. and so we've just dedicated ourselves now to building that groundwork mm. uh, and so the first video that uh, that actually we released is basically two and a half minutes on just the idea of a carbon budget mm. uh it's 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 as simple as that it's sort of like this is rough this is what the science understands that we have left this is what we're actually doing about, about it this is the this is a trajectory we're on now this is what that trajectory means for everyone uh and and it's very it's very compact it's it's it's, it's beautifully animated um and by none other than uh, the the famous and infamous uh, David Hostetter. Exactly, yes. Uh, my wonderful brother helped us out with this. Um, and You should see the picture I put of the two of you in the newsletter, actually. Oh, I'll have to check that out. Speaking of which, that's another plug. If you uh, <laughs> want to find out about all these updates and all the other stuff we're doing to uh, to join our newsletter, mm. which is uh, once a month. We don't bother you. Just go to greenmajority.ca. There's a link to join that there. Um, but yeah, just to finish up, the idea basically is to have these have these as resources for anyone who wants to sort of either get involved, understand sort of what understand better what's going on, or to actually educate others. Uh, we do uh, we are on occasion are asked into classes, and I've found that having these sort of video tools to sort of break up you know discussions on this really helps keep uh, keeps uh, youth engaged. Uh, and so this ability, so what we're trying to create basically is what we're doing really is we're creating what we would use if we went into classes, and then mm-hmm. encouraging other people to also use them. Uh, all of course, uh, just on YouTube. Yeah, and how much are we charging to view the video? Uh, Zero dollars. It's free. It's free. That's crazy. Crazy Dave's video sale. No, yes. <laughs> uh, the uh, I, I chose David completely random in that sense. <laughs> um, the uh, no, I think the, the the whole point. Yeah, as you were saying, we started talking about a more complex topic, and there was always like, well, okay, but you know, we need to start. You know, the, where w- there's all this backstory, and, and and I was trying to make one. I was trying to write one video about uh, some common misconceptions about renewable energy, and then I was like, well, even to explore or one of them, this is going to be a 15-minute video because there's so much backstory that we need. And so eventually, yeah, just we just eventually was like, okay, let's start at the beginning. Yeah. Uh, and I'm really excited. This is not uh, – and so it's very similar if I had to compare it to something. Um, we sort of went after the the very famous and very popular story of stuff style. Yeah. Um, not exactly the same, but in that context, yeah. in that similar uh, sort of idea. Uh, but the basic thing is uh, the couple really important points for me um, was that A – we're we're talking about science and we're talking about things like public policy and and you know big big level decision stuff but in an accessible and more importantly i think humorous way mm-hmm. there's there's definitely a few points when we really hope that you're going to smile at a bare minimum <laughs> uh there's some very amusing uh, graphics that that uh, dave has drawn in uh, and we're trying to do it with a sense of humor uh, but also i think uh, it potentially even more or at the very least as important was the fact that it, there is, we're, we're very much going out of our way to not say, you know, here's a bunch of information you need to know, and here's what we're going to tell you what the conclusion should be. Mm-hmm. The point is, is that these are resources for anybody we want. Again, we want to bring – this isn't about taking people who already are really passionate about the environment and giving them a few more factoids to have in their Rolodex. This is about reaching out to people who maybe aren't activated on this or just don't know a lot. 
and and we don't think it, it does anybody any favors to talk down to people to tell people what to think. I don't I don't just don't I just don't think that's how you reach out to people uh, and bring them on board. And so we we really made it a very distinct effort to to just make it accessible and not preach to people and just say here's the basic information. You come up to your own conclusion with the facts, but these are facts, and we need to have you need to think about this. Mm-hmm. What the conclusion you draw is your own. Uh, so that's really exciting. So uh, the, the first people who will find out about it is people who are on our, our list. You'll have to go to greenmajority.ca uh, to find that. But eventually it will be on our YouTube channel. Uh, and we look forward to making many, many, many more. I mean, there's there's potentially could be more than 50 of these episodes. For so sure. Yeah, absolutely uh, no end in sight for those. Uh, so without further ado, though, we've got about uh, 12 minutes left. Um, I, I, I will let you come back in because um, I've been doing most of the talking here as well. Um, but also because you were uh, very much involved in some of the original conversations about uh, demographics. So I wanted to give you an opportunity to respond to some of the your th- any thoughts you might have had about that interview. Uh, yeah. Uh, so this is – I think this is the – I. it's funny. We always, we always say Kevin is the most popular. Uh, I think this is the only time I've ever been given any feedback, uh, and it was some very, very angry person with me uh, when I said that I didn't really care about population growth and thought it didn't actually matter, uh, then trotted out a whole bunch of statistics uh, f- f- uh, on the previous UN report, uh, which was the report that basically said it would, it would drop around, we'd, we'd settle around 9.5 million, or billion, sorry. Uh, and then when I heard Kevin sort of pitch uh, what this what this conversation would be last week, I was like... It, that sounds insanely dire. Uh, it's I'm, I'm I'm now I'm now concerned that I'm gonna have to walk back literally everything I said and apologize to everybody. Uh, but now that I listen to it, I get to I get to be I get to I get to find a happy medium amongst the two of them, uh, which is that I he, what he said still to me did not sound uh, terribly terribly terrifying. Uh, especially given the other, at least on the scale of things I find terrifying, uh, I find you know the fact that we have thirty years te- on the, uh, without any, with, as in business usually we have thirty years to completely get off carbon. Uh, I find that absolutely terrifying. Uh, the population growth going to slowing down but getting to ten point five billion instead of nine point five billion, at least for me, still remains uh, secondary uh, to climate change. Um, and of course, that's a part of you know it's impossible to separate the two entirely. But I think I still think there's there's a lot of room to go before I'm going to start you know advocating for a one child policy. <laughs> and and so I, what I, what but what I found so interesting about what he was talking about was the sort of interesting dichotomy that exists uh, amongst the people I so often I often find there's I guess there are two types of people I think who really 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 care about population growth. Uh, they're the Kevin Farmers, and then they're the opposite of Kevin Farmers. <laughs> Uh, also, hi, Kevin, if you're here. I'm, 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 I'm going to put a bunch of words in your mouth, Kevin. Uh, so next week, you can come find me and, uh, and fight me if I'm wrong. Uh, but there's, there's the subset of uh, – I'm going to – sort of the Kevin Farmers of the, of the world. Uh, see under sort of or really actually have done all the science, know absolutely everything uh, that exists uh, and, and just fully understand the impact of every single human life has on this planet uh, and, uh, and are legitimately very, very concerned about really just every single thing. Uh, like we could have Kevin sit here and just ask him, what are you scared about today? And he would give us an hour long show of something new. <laughs> uh, every single time by Kevin, he has a new thing that he's, that, that he's discovered that the whole world is insane. Um, like, like plastic oceans. So it's like, you know, <laughs> the jellyfish taking over the world, um, which might have been mine, not his. Although jellyfish taking over the world is a thing. If you look up below ocean acidification and jellyfish, we might have entirely oceans of jellyfish. Yeah, I hope uh, everyone is uh, finds jellyfish tasty. By the way, yes, exactly. Uh, so there's so there's that kind of set of person who's and, and I won't go as far as to say that 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 uh, they necessarily view humans as a virus. 
if they can steal a line from the Matrix. Nice. Uh, but uh, but see, sort of see, understand understand humanity's impacts in that sort of way. And on the other side, the, the other side is exactly why I actually and I think I understand their viewpoint, and I'm and I'm and I'm fully I'm I'm, I'm not going to fight that one. But the reason why I find myself so wary of of, of harping too much on the conservative population growth is the opposite side of the people who bring it up. And the opposite of, side of people who bring it up are the people who see this as a way to mitigate or to basically to brush off their own obligations on this issue. Uh, the, it is very Malthusian. Understanding, uh, understanding uh, neo-Malthusianism uh, is, in my opinion, incredibly just blaming the poor. Uh, you know, there was like Malthus's one of Malthus's main points was that it's no bother even trying to help any poor people uh, because they be, because they'll just breed more and then they'll and then they'll, that they'll be more poor people, uh, which to me is a disgusting statement. Um, and uh, and I, I can't I can't get behind and, and so there's a subset of people who I think find a way to sort of see this as a as a way to blame poor people for the predicaments that we created. Like we, the, the people who are being born now aren't the people who created the society that exists that l- has led us to the problems we're having now. Well, it's it's the same. I mean, it's the same sort of obfuscation that gets used. I mean, you, you could use it on anything. It's it's still on sort of ignorant and I mean, heartless. Not is in like irrationally heartless mm-hmm. in the same sense of be like, oh well, there's always going to be war. You can never end all conflict. Therefore, we should never even try and prevent war. Yeah, uh, you can replace any word you want. Hunger, any any negative thing, you'd be like, well, we're never going to get rid of it entirely. So therefore, we shouldn't put any effort into fixing it all. That's insane. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and and I think and to and to sort of expand on that, I think where that partially comes from is is. Exactly what um, uh, this is this like kind of hypocrisy there uh, with business uh, and and the idea that so often or not you the reason that, you know the business leaders quote unquote often argue things like well India and China are actually the greatest increasing of carbon emissions uh, so when they start doing something maybe we'll consider doing something and at the same time you hear you hear uh, David Foote say that these business interests like population growth because it gives them a chance to see their growth. So well, they're exploiting an, poor populations while then blaming them for their for for other problems. Uh, I, I forget the actual word that he used, but but his point on this I think was was very uh, important. So I just want to highlight mm-hmm. it, which uh, as close to I can remember is what he said was that um, is that I mean like basically our economy is based on a continuously expanding population, but there's a reason for it, and the the reason for it is because it's it's easier to simply have more customers than it is is to consistently improve your profit model. And so it's like it's like the lazy way of making money is just find more people to sell your product to rather than you know improving your product or improving your cost structure or doing all these things. Um, and they're not mutually exclusive and there are finite limits to how much you can do either. Um, but that essentially business just sort of gets this free ride on the fact that there's always more people to the fact that our entire system is now based on like that's the meat and potatoes. That's the, the base load, if you will, of our economy functioning is just the fact that there's always more people than tomorrow than there was yesterday. Um, and at this point, and this is sort of what he was saying was that um and and what i was asking him about about having doesn't business think about this was that it's it's based on it consistently expanding and yet we've been reading reports for years that it's going to stabilize and regardless of what that number is the number doesn't matter the fact that it's going to stop growing means that it's like slamming on the brakes in the middle of the highway uh everything goes to hell yeah, um, yeah, that was the, that was how he sort. That was earlier on in the conversation he was having, in which he, in he had his entire bit about uh, of being quite concerned uh, with how business will grow and how and how population growth actually is tied in with with the with the growth of the economy. Um, and I think that's 
that sort of shows the sort of fatal flaw of of the way we way way the the world understands itself right now, or the economy understands itself, which is that growth is the only answer. Mm-hmm. Um, because that's because because of the fact that if you do advocate for for endless growth, uh, and it is currently tied to uh, tied to increased population. That's actually impossible. Like there cannot be twenty five billion people on this planet. That's actually like that. No one. You can. Argue, there's interesting conversations to be had around whether or not growth can be the understanding of the economy can be changed so that growth does not require physical increases of stuff. Uh, but that's a much different conversation than the conversation we're having now. Replicators. Uh, yes, like replicators. <laughs> uh, we're going very sci-fi with this conversation. <laughs> well, uh, we're talking about you know possibility and technology. Exactly. Um, but it, there's a few really interesting things he, things he said. I mean, the, the base of the conversation, and I think where we, where this gets lost a little bit sometimes, was that there was a conversation that was being had about what is our best expectations of the population, which is you know is it going to stabilize? Is it going to not sort of stabilize? Uh, it doesn't. Uh, but that sidesteps the fact that you know the the newer study that says that it's it's going to be a little bit higher and it won't entirely stop. It's just going to slow down a lot. Um, it, as he was saying, s- kind of serves the business model. And he was kind of like, he didn't mean it seriously, but he's kind of like, for all I know, like this, it's, isn't it convenient that this it serves business interests? You know, maybe they've in, embedded the UN. Um, but the, the thing that he started the interview with, which is just that like, the, uh, like I asked him, I didn't mean to set him up for that. I actually just like, so how does technology factor into this? And like, oh, they don't measure that. <laughs> like what? So, I mean, we really have to take all of these yeah. things and just understand. And that's why I started with that. How hard is it just to be a demographer? That was my first question was, was because I know, I know and he illustrated very well the fact that a lot of these numbers – I mean regardless of whose numbers you're looking at, none of them are going to be entirely accurate. We can just make increasingly good guesses. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that's probably almost the time that we have uh, for today. There's just a couple of minutes uh, left. Um, so the other thing I wanted to do was just remind people as well about uh, that there's the other uh, – the video stuff coming out. They can find about that on, on the mailing list. Uh, we also uh, have this interview going up uh, online. Uh, we're going to be producing – a few more, uh, but the last thing we hadn't sort of mentioned recently was there's the one other type of video that uh, that we were starting to work on, mm-hmm. and you're you're in the middle of working on another one. But do you want to just uh, just talk for a minute uh, for the last like uh, two minutes just about that other stream? That for sure, yeah. So uh, one of the other things we like to do is just sort of play around with uh, with with different propaganda sent out by the oil companies i'll call it uh which is you know we had some fun with uh with some pretty mountain stuff before uh and surprisingly it's which now has uh, 2040 bl- uh, views by the way oh there you go uh which uh so the the, the one that i'm working on now actually is first of all just actually going to the youtube I, I find it so interesting that corporations have youtube channels like large corporations have youtube channels and then what they decide to put up there uh, just all of that interests me because there's someone's job who has to figure out how can I make Trans Canada relatable, and I just don't understand how. Like, who has that job? <laughs> that's got to be the weirdest job to have. Well, I'm afraid that's all the time we have for today. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM. See everybody next week. 